Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. I'm Jessica Bylander. Today, I'm talking to Joanna Bays, a social worker for the Aged Persons Mental Health Program at Melbourne Health in Melbourne, Australia. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Bayes writes about developing post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, after she broke her neck in a traumatic accident and ended up in the ICU for a week. Post-intensive care syndrome is defined as new or worsening impairment in physical, cognitive, or mental health status arising after critical illness and persisting beyond discharge from the acute care setting. It affects up to half of all people who survive a critical illness leading to an ICU stay, and it can also affect family members of those in the ICU. And yet, avoiding or treating this condition doesn't really factor into the care that patients receive in the ICU or afterwards generally, which can lead to prolonged and difficult recoveries. Joanna, thank you for joining us today and for sharing the story of your accident and recovery, which I'm sure was not easy to write about. And PICS was not something I was aware of before reading this piece. I think one of your goals in writing the piece was to increase awareness of the condition. So what do you wish people knew about PICS? I wish that doctors knew that it existed basically and um, resources could get put towards it in the sense of, you know, checking out whether um, people who've had an ICU experience need psychology to help process the the trauma Um, and that doesn't seem to happen and where we're at at the moment is that even GPs don't don't know about this and because of COVID putting lots more people in ICU um, that is very traumatic for, for most of them it would be very helpful if GPs and other health professionals do know about this and um, can target recovery more easily. Yeah, and I, I'm curious how long till you truly felt like you had recovered and kind of what helped you in your recovery? What helped me ended up being the support networks that I had in place. So family, neighbours, colleagues, um, and it probably took about six months until I I felt that I was through the emotional part of it. But having said that, there are still times that I can engage with my recovering self and you know, have nightmares sometimes. So I think it's an, an ongoing process, but I certainly took six months before I could get back to work and and focus on other things aside from recovering physically and emotionally. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And now here is Joanna Bays reading her essay, Echoes of Trauma, Post-Intensive Care Syndrome. Initially, there were fragments. A voice asked, where are you? Why are you here? Can you wiggle your toes for me? I replied, in Canberra Hospital, I fell off a balcony. My voice was hoarse. I knew what to say, but I did not believe my words. They had been narrated to me earlier by an intensive care unit or ICU nurse and were spoken by me now before I slid back into unconsciousness. 
I had no drive to understand what the words meant. The observer in me was still there, but small, passive and mostly silent. I wiggled my toes. After my accident, I would go on to spend a week in the ICU, followed by several additional weeks in hospitals in Canberra and Melbourne, Australia. Treatment focused on my multiple and extensive physical injuries. But similar to many patients, I received no assistance with processing the brutality of my trauma and recovery. I was on my own with that. I developed what's called post-intensive care syndrome, or PICS, defined as new or worsening impairment in physical, cognitive or mental health status, arising after critical illness and persisting beyond discharge from the acute care setting. The risk factors for PICS are older age, being female, previous mental health problems, a negative ICU experience, and delirium. Sedation can also contribute, along with a noisy, disruptive hospital environment. I had all but one of these risk factors. According to some estimates, up to half of all people who survive a critical illness leading to an ICU stay experience PICS. Family members can develop this syndrome as well. Health professionals need to do more to address it. Alice, my daughter, was about to start high school. I wanted to give her a taste of my own childhood holidays, so I rented a house in Mossy Point in New South Wales, Australia. The house was a church in its previous life and backed onto a river. It had a spiral staircase linking the bedrooms upstairs to the downstairs living area. There was also a balcony on the upper floor, overlooking a porch below. We are under the magical spell of the first night of a holiday, when everything is new and time stretches out before you. I asked Alice to dangle her legs in the gaps between the stairs and took some photos. After the accident, I studied our pre-accident faces, surprised that life can change so quickly, wondering why those faces foolishly did not register what was to come. Alice was a witness to events of that night and the following days, not the fall itself, but the aftermath. In the months that followed, I would badger her in my attempt to fit together the broken parts of my story, endlessly seeking a narrative that made sense. She answered my questions patiently and slowly revealed the courage of her actions in keeping me safe. Phoning for an ambulance is difficult when you do not know where you are and time is ticking away. When Alice had located the address and called triple zero, the operator asked whether I was alert and breathing. Alice somehow found the strength to go out the back door to confront this question. She kept me still, preventing me from moving my neck and severing my spinal cord, therefore probably saving my life. She was alone but not alone. In the ICU, I was not tethered to time. The line between sleep and consciousness was blurred. When I woke, I was dragged back into the sludge of an opiate sleep. I asked for painkillers straight away, unable to feel anything but pain. It consumed me and I was consumed by it. I could not properly sequence events and yet did not ask why I fell. 
My post-traumatic amnesia protected me from the full impact of my accident. I had no memories of the fall or of the helicopter ride from the south coast over the mountains to Canberra Hospital. Nor do I remember the halo brace being screwed onto my skull to prevent movement in my neck. I wonder whether I was terrified or trusting and whether these feelings remain in my body somewhere. In the early days of recovery, I required two nurses to move me. I found energy from my oblivion to shout at them, which stopped them briefly. I took strength from this and shouted louder when they came again, flailing my arms so they could not get close. But they kept coming. They rolled me, holding my ribs firmly, not knowing then about the 11 breaks in them, while I shouted for them to stop. There were only three themes, sleep, pain and fight. When I woke, discomfort would make me tug at my nasogastric tube, pull out my oxygen plugs and lift up my top because I was hot and in pain. I was trapped and fought vigorously despite being slowed by opiates. I felt I could not bear the pain and then realised that I could not escape it either. This caused an awful despair and hopelessness that thankfully did not last long. I was given an extra nurse who was often cross with me but stopped me from sabotaging my treatment. I had terrible, vivid nightmares in the ICU that reflected my compromised physical state. In one, I was attacked by a man who was strangling me. As he squeezed my neck, I gave in. This is the only way the attack would end. I gave in to the hospital too and accepted my treatment, despite my fear. Variations of this nightmare continued well into my recovery. As time went on, my injuries became apparent. The most alarming was a broken neck, a hangman's fracture of my C2 vertebrae. I had gone over the balcony railing and struck my head against the porch railing outside. My neck was forced back by the railing until it snapped. I also broke my larynx, jaw and ribs. My teeth continued to chip in my mouth, even during my recovery. I had a brain bleed and damaged lungs. I could not breathe properly or swallow, hence my need for tubes. I had double vision and daily injections into my stomach to stop blood clots forming. In the ICU, I began to have more lucid moments in which I was aware of Alice and my mother at my bedside. I managed to telephone my work, telling my boss that I had broken my neck and that I would not be back from manual leave on time, feeling guilty, like a malingerer overplaying symptoms to avoid work. I thought it would take a few more weeks before life returned to normal. I was in denial about the extent of my trauma. Eventually, we found an explanation for my fall. One night, a staff member at the hospital found me walking down the fire escape. In my sleep, I was roused by a gentle voice asking me where I was going. I don't know, I said confused. I think I'm disoriented. I think so too, the voice said kindly, as if we had found something in common. Let's get you back to bed. The sleep consultant reviewed me at my bedside the next day and declared that I met the sleepwalking criteria. There was shared relief. On the night of the accident, I was at high risk for sleepwalking as I was tired from a day's driving and disoriented from being in a new place. 
After a week in the ICU, my nurse told me I was being moved to the high dependency unit in the neurosurgery ward. By that stage, I had a kind of Stockholm syndrome. I was dependent on my irritable nurse to alleviate my pain. She saw the concern and reassured me, I'll come to visit you. She did not visit and it did not matter. She had no obligations beyond the ICU. I was a body to be tended and she had done her job well. As the pain became less consuming, I took more of an interest in the activity around me and joined conversations. We formed a small supportive community. There was a kind politician with a brain tumour and a woman who had broken her neck riding a horse with her family. She had said in disbelief, I never even wanted to go horse riding. We were the lucky ones who could reasonably expect to return to our lives in the future, even if this belief was corroded by doubt sometimes. Another man had broken his neck in a car accident and was now paraplegic and severely depressed. His father wanted me to talk to him, but I could not. Of the two of us, I was a survivor. The father's request confused me. I was just treading water. I had old friends visit. The faces I knew so well in my youth appeared before me 25 years older, a blur of the familiar. This was part of the stripping away process of trauma recovery. You were laid bare. Then you start to build yourself up again, story after story. I did not see myself as others must have seen me, with a steel contraption rising like scaffolding from my head, my eyes flickering and askew, my voice altered from my broken larynx. When I was moaning outside after falling, Alice had thought there was a cow in the yard. Eventually, after almost three weeks in Canberra Hospital, I was flown to Melbourne Hospital. I do not remember the flight, only being transferred from the ambulance stretcher to the Royal Flying Doctor Service plane stretcher, roaring along the runway and then being transferred to the ambulance in Melbourne. Melbourne Hospital was a shock after the relatively small and quiet Canberra Hospital. Melbourne Hospital is a huge, clattering health factory. The noises, voices and lights of the day seem to barely dim at night. I was awakened overnight and taken for scans. After sleep finally came, I was awakened again at 7am for rounds. I was always too tired to inquire about my treatment. Returning to life in Melbourne did not feel like coming home. I expected to quickly integrate my post-accident self with my pre-accident communities. It takes time to incorporate trauma into a life to reform a sense of self and agency. There is a need to reflect on the shock and violence of trauma, on the deep-seated internal disturbance it produces. In my case, psychological support, either in or out of hospital, was not offered at any point, which potentially prolonged and complicated my recovery. I slept poorly at home without an adjustable hospital bed. The more tired I became, the lower my mood. I was flat, vague and unfocused. On Alice's first day of high school, one of the most important days of her childhood, I failed to wave her off or wish her well. I was absent as a parent during this time and can never fill that hole. One night, I dreamt that I was in the ICU 
endlessly pulling my nasogastric tube out. It kept coming like an awful magic trick, giving me the panic sensation of relentless choking. I was sabotaging my treatment in my dreams. My mother visited every day to carefully clean the four entry points of my halo brace into my skull to prevent infection. Increasingly, she found me in bed, staring at the ceiling. She reassured me that I would get better with time and encouraged me to get out of bed and take on the day. Her reassurance irritated me. Clearly, I was not getting better and there were no guarantees about my future. I asked her to leave, a child banishing her mother, a patient banishing her nurse, go. My mother stayed and made us coffee. She sat quietly on my bed to drink it with me. I could not look at her. At that stage, my only form of pleasure was relief, from pain, from hunger, from fatigue, from caffeine withdrawal. I took it to the edge, allowing the gaps between relief to widen. Sedation that came from pain medication was a sinking sensation, one that reduced my ability to climb out of depression. I sat up and drank my coffee. When my mother left, my feelings started to churn. The frustration, fear and sense of entrapment I experienced in the ICU returned. I was angry at my mother for holding me down when I knew that she was trying to lift me up. I lay in bed and let these feelings roll over me in waves until I slept. This happened repeatedly during the next month. Eventually the waves diminished and some energy and purpose returned. I started to go on daily walks. Once I was moving and breathing clean air, my mood began to lift. Pleasure gradually re-emerged. The echoes of trauma can linger. According to Pierre Berger and David Broad, up to 50% of patients who survive a critical illness that warrants an ICU admission are susceptible to developing PICs. This is particularly relevant today as many patients with COVID-19 who have been mechanically ventilated may go on to experience PICs. Psychological symptoms such as anxiety, depression, nightmares, exhaustion, and post-traumatic stress disorder, secondary to a stay in ICU, can impede recovery and social integration. In an ideal world, a multidisciplinary team, including physical therapists, occupational therapists, social workers, and psychologists, would assess and address the complex physical and psychological factors experienced during a patient's time in the ICU that contribute to PICS. Approached early on, those risk factors that are modifiable can be minimised, for example, limiting the use of deep sedation and encouraging early mobility. Although all critical care survivors should be evaluated for PICS as a matter of course, there is currently no international classification of diseases code for it. Subsequently, there is no validated universal screening tool for assessing patients for it. A lack of universal measures hinders a widespread awareness and understanding of PICS, the tracking of its prevalence through a database and related policy development and large-scale research. In my case, 
I relied on constructing my own slow, steady and sometimes wobbly path through recovery with the goodwill of family, friends, neighbours and colleagues helping me along. Alice and my mother closely travelled this path with me and I continue to feel immensely grateful for their love, constancy and unassailable support. That was Joanna Bays reading her essay, Echoes of Trauma, Post-Intensive Care Syndrome. Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you like this episode, tell a friend and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.